Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Laura Coates. This is CNN Tonight. And the entire world is following the extraordinary pomp and circumstance of the U.K.'s first full day in 70 years without its queen. And with their funeral still days away and the official coronation of King Charles tomorrow... This may just be the beginning. Our own Don Lemon is at Buckingham Palace. I want to get right back to him right now. Hey, Don Lemon, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Laura Coates. I am well. I'm a little chilly. We have gone today from heat to downpours and now to 57-degree temperatures here. But, um, it, you know, it, it's interesting. It's good to be here uh, yeah. to witness this. Obviously, a very sad occasion and, and really mixed because... Um, you have a king. Imagine being, you know, Prince Charles. All of a sudden you become the king of the country, but you do it after, you, after losing your mother. So uh, it's an interesting time to be here. Extraordinary. I mean, think about that, just the gravitas of that moment. And you are there. You are where everyone is really thinking of and their eyes towards it. We're seeing all the flowers be brought. We're seeing the crowds there. A woman kissing the now King Charles III um, as he did a little bit of a walkabout. They used to with his, his mother actually started out. What is the feeling out there right now? I mean, there is a bit of a mixed reaction globally to monarchies in general. But the idea of this very revered connective tissue of a figure in Queen Elizabeth II, what is it like being out there? What is the, the atmosphere like out there? Well, listen, I wouldn't say quite honestly. I mean, you do see uh, some people shedding tears, but I, I don't think it's absolute sadness. I mean, let's be honest. She was 96 years old, and it's, it is sad that she is gone. Uh, but again, I mean, she is she was 96 years old. And as our Christiane Amanpour put it earlier, uh, as far as we know, just her batteries. This is her. These are her words that sort of ran out. You know, she's getting up there in age. Um, it was believed by people who were close to her. They had been saying they didn't believe that she was going to return from Balmoral uh, in Scotland, the place that she loved so much because she sort of had some mobility issues. And why would she come back to this when she was sort of in her her own um, paradise there. But um, there there are mixed emotions here. There are, you know, people, quite frankly, who um, think that the, the monarchy is sort of a, a relic of the past and uh, that the country should move past it. And there are others who, who really like the tradition but just think that it should be modernized uh, a bit more. And then, of course, you have the issue, quite frankly, we call it an issue of diversity, but the, the you know, the past dealings are doing of the monarchy, and they have a lot to to answer for and to make up for um, when it comes to what had been done to uh, brown and black people um, in the Commonwealth. And we're going to see a lot. I mean, the idea of the of the king um, being essentially his coronation tomorrow, it's a new era, frankly. And this is somebody we've heard the opinions of him in the past, unlike we've heard from the, you know, the late queen. There's been so many actresses, as you know, in different series who've tried to personify what they believe her emotions and thoughts would be. And here we are in real time going to see quite a different scenario. But you're right. So many people around the world are watching this and some are wondering about the focus and others know that there has been quite a fixation 
on the crown, on what's known as the firm, when it goes comes to the royal weddings, um, the idea of what's happened in the past, the more recent turbulence in the royal family. And we're seeing a lot of reaction here. But I just, I can't help but think, I mean, Don, here we are in the United States talking about the transition of power and the difficulties and the, the, the shortcomings and the hurdles as people believe and think about it. And here we had the second, the last breath of the queen, a king essentially went rose to power. And it's just so interesting to think about that very notion of how we're so different. Mm -hmm. And yet our history and maybe our futures are very much intertwined. Well, listen, how we're so different and not so different. Listen, we we do not have a monopoly on reality shows. Mm -hmm. I would I would say that the monarchy was the first great, the original uh, reality show. And certainly within the last decade or so, maybe even before, I think with Diana, um, you know, the, the, the mask sort of dropped. The, the walls started to come down because Diana was open about how she felt about the monarchy, how feeling that she was on display, her, her you know, problems, eating disorder, uh, her husband, who is now married to the woman who um, she said was the third person in her marriage. So I think that was the first uh, reality show, so to speak, um, that, that we have, have seen. And it played out in real time for us. Think about what happened with Meghan and Harry and then also what's happening with or, ha- or has happened with Prince Andrew. So there, there's a lot, um, you know, to, to look at here. But, yeah, there's, it is a great transition of power here. There isn't a real political role right. uh, for the monarchy, for the royal family here. But there's also a, con- but there's a, a constitutional role, people being sworn in. And there's a great tradition uh, that the people respect here. And we'll see how far that carries into the future with William and uh, with his father, uh, now King Charles. The third. Don't forget to add the third. We got to get the full title there. Don Lemon. The third. It's so the third. Don Lemon. It's the hard first, for me to great. even get King, king out. I'm, I'm so used to saying <laughs> Prince Charles. I know. In a way, it, it kind of feels like how everyone does the whole Vice President, I mean, President Biden. We're going to have the Prince, I mean, King Charles moment for quite a long time, I'm sure. Don Lemon, thank you so much. Get some rest. You are our eyes and ears on the ground. We love having your perspective and seeing the world through your eyes, even across the pond, my friend. Good night. Thank you, Laura Coates. I appreciate it. Welcome, Don Lemon. Well, now I want to turn now to Nick Robertson, who is at Balmoral in Scotland. And again, our eyes and ears on the ground and what we're seeing in in, in Balmoral, we are going back to this place, a place where many of us remember when Princess Diana passed. The family learned of her passing there. We know this has been a reprieve, a sanctuary, a, a paradise, as Don has described it as well, for the late queen. And just last, yes, yesterday, they were there receiving the word that she had passed and, and, and peacefully. I wonder, Nick, you, you've been there and, and you actually, you know, we all heard now soon to be officially King Charles III on that hot mic describing that in a very emotional way, this is a moment that he in many respects, was like lamenting and, and, and was um, not eager to have happen. And I just wonder from what it's like out there, what are you seeing? What are you understanding to be the, the emotional state of the family known as the firm? 
Yeah, I, I think that hot mic moment is also an interesting moment because, you know, prime ministers historically have spoken to the monarch about once a week. This was a private audience they would have. Generally, the, the prime minister of the day would show up at uh, Buckingham Palace and the Queen's first prime minister was Winston Churchill. Um, you know, a towering figure and a daunting figure for, for a young queen to be sitting with. But there was always during that time, during those conversations, a confidentiality. No prime minister would ever reveal the content of the conversation with the monarch. Um, yet here is the monarch with the new prime minister who the queen had only just invited to form a government just a couple of days ago. Um, there's a camera there and the microphone picks up the very intimate words, the sort of words you wouldn't ever hear. The Queen, um, over her time with, with 15 different prime ministers, was really someone who later prime ministers talked about, about giving them advice, um, about um, encouragement, uh, about steadying them through uh, the difficult times of their, their leaderships. Um, this is both prime minister and the king, King Charles III, knew. Um, and a new environment and a hot mic, and we, we pick up a snippet of, of the raw emotion that, that King Charles is going through, the loss of his mother, and this hugely daunting prospect, not just of becoming king, but this whole question is, can he do it? Can the people love King Charles the way they loved his mother? He understands why and how they loved his mother, but can he rise and, as rise and aspire to that and be good for the monarchy? and make sure, as she did, that the firm is on stable footing and can endure, and let's think about it, we've had a thousand years of, 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 of kings and queens in this country. Can it endure and carry on? And perhaps in his son, um, Prince William, now uh, the Prince of Wales, along with Catherine, Prince, Princess of Wales, um, the title Diana had, perhaps in them it's possible. They take their children to school, so different um, to what Prince Charles, uh, now King Charles, of course, experienced, sent off to boarding school. The coming royals take their children to school and pick them up at the end of the day. It's so different already. It's such an important point. And that phrase you said just now, Nick, the idea, can he be good for the monarchy? That in and of itself, what is good now, will have to change and evolve with the times. We've had a, a monarch for 70 years, but a lot has changed. You pointed to Prime Minister Winston Churchill for Americans. We're thinking about, we're talking about since the presidency of Harry Truman, what a different world we're in. And one would have to keep up with the times in order to maintain them. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. More on the late queen, the new king's message to England, and the future of the monarchy is ahead in this hour. But up next... Late word tonight on the newest legal battlefront in the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department and, by the way, the Trump legal team together offering up names for the role of special master, although they've offered different ones. But they're really making these vastly different arguments about how things should go from there. We'll come right back to that. So just about 90 minutes ago, we got brand new filings from both the DOJ and former President Trump's legal team. Now, each are responding to a judge's decision to temporarily, as you know, block the FBI from using the documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago in its criminal investigation until what you know as a special master has a chance to go through all of them. Now, they agreed on a little. 
they happen to disagree on a lot. That can't be the shock of the century, that there was some disagreement there. But our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez, has been going through the entire joint filing. And he joins me now, along with former Deputy Attorney General Elliot Williams and former FBI Chief of the Counter Espionage Section, Peter Strzok. A great panel to talk about these issues. Evan, first of all, what's in this filing? What are you learning? Well, we... we, we see a lot of disagreement, obviously. There is, um, you know, for instance, the Justice Department wants this to be quick. They want this to be done in about five weeks. October 17th, I think, is the deadline that they put down. Trump team says, how about 90 days? Mm. Um, how about three months? Um, how, about, how about never? How about, I mean, never? how about never? Right, exactly, right? We know what the, the game there. Um, uh, the government wants the, 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 the special master to not look at classified documents and not to consider anything about executive privilege, which, of course, they don't believe is a thing. Trump says, uh, of course, it should be, the whole point of this is to look at executive privilege along with attorney-client privilege. They wanted to look at everything. And so... You know, that, I think those are two big places where the two sides disagree. One other thing that I think is interesting in the, in the filing is you see Trump uh, saying for the first time, maybe suggesting that they're trying to take the position that maybe not all these documents are actually classified. Uh, they say in, in this thing that, you know, the government is presuming these things are classified mm-hmm. when really they're, they're, they're marked classified and it's up to the special master to try to decide whether these items are actually classified. I think that's a very interesting way for them to open up that, that, that little area that we've all been waiting for them, that Trump, of course, has been saying on, on his social media platforms that I declassified everything, but they've not actually taken that position in court. And so I'm not sure whether this is what they're trying to do here or whether they're just trying to be a little bit coy with the whole situation to say, well, the special master will decide whether these things are actually classified. I mean, what a, what a situation to be in, Peter. I mean, the idea of a special master who is likely going to get some sort of security clearance in reviewing the documents quickly, if at all, if they go through the list, should that person be in the position to say, hmm, that's classified or not? Isn't that the purview of the government, not a special master? Absolutely it is. And that's whether or not a special master is appointed. If they are, if whether or not they're coming across things that are marked as classified or not, they have to presume that there may be some unmarked things that aren't classified. But I absolutely agree with Evan. What stood out to me, you know, the bulk of the government's filing said, you know what, we disagree that the special master is needed at all. But at a minimum, these marked classified documents should be off limits. That should go directly to both the uh, risk assessment that the intelligence community is doing, as well as to the investigators so that they can pursue it. This was Trump's chance to argue in a filing saying, hey, he did magically declassify this. To take some sort of stand to push back against what the government was saying, they didn't do it. And what that tells me is not, I don't know that they're playing coy. I think that they realize that there is not a legally supportable argument to say that Trump magically declassified it. And that's what leapt out at me. Again, I don't think they made a very strong counterargument. And I hope, as you know, Evan indicated, this does open the door potentially a little bit for Judge Cannon to say, okay, Classified documents are off limits for a special matter. Which makes sense. I mean, first of all, don't take just your word for it. Bill Barr said something similar about the idea of declassification. Mike Pompeo, something very similar. President Biden about the idea of waving a magic wand. But it makes sense in a way, Elliot, the idea of, okay, you want to review privileged documents, but the meat of the matter here are the classified documents. So is it appropriate to compartmentalize the way DOJ is trying to and saying, fine, privileged, you got it. Classified, whole different ballgame. There's 
there's a simple way to make this go away, Laura. And it's and like you're saying, just segregate out, take out those classified documents and just have the special master, as a special master would do in virtually any other case, review things for attorney-client privilege um, and, and, and other problems. As, a, I, as an easier lift, you're saying. It's just an easier lift and, and it um, it doesn't require... Um, the kind of back and forth that that I think is now opened up, and the judge now has to rule on the Justice Department's um, uh, motion from a few days ago. They've now put that um, um, in her lap. So. Yeah, but that back and forth, Evan, you're reporting, and you go, you've gone through it. They actually anticipate having to do a back and forth about who needs to review things and when. Is it special master first? Is it us talking amongst ourselves, not us? Obviously, the Trump team and DOJ before a special master. They anticipated all of this drama. They, they really did, and I think they were ready f- for that. But the, the, the most important thing I think that they want is for the FBI to have uh, the restored access to these documents, which, you know, is pretty extraordinary for what this judge did last yeah. week, or, or rather this, this week. I, I, I don't know how long this what drama... What day is it? What day is it? I, I don't even know, right? <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea that, you know, she has cut off access to these, do- to these documents for the Justice Department, and a, a part of the Justice Department, which... You know, at its core, that's their job, right? Is to investigate crime. One last thing, I just want to point out real quick. One of one of Trump's uh, nominees, or the names uh, that he suggests, is um, um, Raymond Deary, who serves served on the on the FISA court. He signed one of the uh, orders for surveillance on Carter Page, mm. and you can see what they're trying to do there, right? They they know that he signed. He this was one of the the the, the orders that the Justice Department later withdrew because they said there were serious serious errors and omissions in them. So you can see that they're trying to find somebody that perhaps might have some very deep suspicion about the FBI. Yeah, or maybe an axe to grind, the right. idea of, like, you, you played me, fooled me once. What do you make of that, Peter? Well, I think I'm always curious when you see somebody, certainly, that has a background, one in intelligence. He is bringing something to the table. Even if there's some level of suspicion about what happened, the fact of the matter is he served on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. He was the chief justice. He has experience in a national security context. So, you know, I thought, at least from the Trump side of things, that was a pretty uh, interesting nomination because at he least at first blush, it seems like, and if he, if he doesn't, it could Get be it reinstated. Quickly. And certainly he has the ability to look at a classified document and not need to be brought up to speed because the other nominee, I mean, he's a commercial litigator. He has no experience in national well, security. Well, I think and, the bigger issue is not just a commercial litigator. His wife is a judge on the 11th Circuit Court <laughs> right. of Appeals, which is the Court of Appeals that would hear this case if it gets appealed. It's just, it's a glaring conflict of interest. And even if they could figure out a way to have her hear the case, it just looks really bad. And so that... Oh, you don't work- think that optics no, is guiding the legal team here, do you? Worked, you also worked with Chris <laughs> Kyes, who is Trump's current lawyer in this look, case. And I get, mm. Look, I get it. There is a, there's a certain degree of combat to litigation and you want to win. Um, but uh, uh, Mr. Huff, more than anybody else. Paul Huck is the name of the attorney. Um, it On its face, it just presents a conflict and it's sort of problematic. The, the two names that the Justice Department put forward, both former federal judges, well-respected on both sides of the aisle. Look, they shop, yeah, for, they they shop for a judge. What makes you think that they, yeah. they weren't shopping oh, for and the they, Republican <laughs> nominees. Yeah, but, well, but one, of the, one of the judges put forward by the government was, in fact, wrote the majority opinion that blocked, at least initially, the House subpoena to Don McGahn. Now, that was overturned, but the point is these are not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, you know, very liberal, far-left judges. There are some folks there that did in the past rule in a way that Trump would find favorable. 
This is why this is such an important conversation and why us breaking it down is so helpful because at first blush, if you're looking at it, which I think a lot of the talking points try to capitalize on, is that these names will mean nothing, that there's no correlation, there's no coincidence. Excellent reporting. Thank you all. Elliot Williams, Peter Strzok, Evan Perez, thank you so much. And look, back overseas, roughly 24 hours after the death of his mother, the new king of England gives the biggest speech of his life addressing a nation that's grieving along with him and his family and speaking directly to his darling mama. We'll show you next. At age 73, the oldest child of the Queen Elizabeth is now the oldest monarch to ever assume the British throne. King Charles III prepared his entire life for this moment. But it's not a celebratory time for him by any stretch, as we overheard the grieving son tell the UK's new prime minister earlier today. It's a moment I've been dreading, mm. as, as I know a lot of people have, but mm. I'm trying to keep everything going. Keep everything going is just what he pledged to do today, offering the people comfort while he himself, along with his family, mourns, both in person and during his first televised address to his nation as the king. I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. My beloved mother was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And... We owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you, and I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. In our sorrow, Let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. Imagine having to comfort an entire nation, really a realm, while you yourself just lost your beloved mum. He will never serve 70 years on the throne like his mother did or anything, frankly, close to that. But he did vow and vows to lead by her example. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love as I have throughout my life. My life will of course change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. But I know this important work will go on in the trusted hands of others. It's expected for the British monarch to, of course, be apolitical. So the king, who once waded into environmental matters and, frankly, other polarizing issues, will now likely be much more muted. Now, in this speech, King Charles also bestowed his former title of 
Prince of Wales on his eldest son, William, who is now first in line to the British throne. And his wife, Kate, becomes Princess of Wales. She's the first now to hold that title since William's late mother, Diana. The king also warmly mentioned his youngest son and daughter-in-law, who chose to leave royal life for a new life here in America. I want also to express my love for Harry and Meghan as they continue to build their lives overseas. At the end, we saw a side of this new king that we've never seen quite before. A son who just lost his mother, talking directly to his now late mother. And to my darling mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. A rare humanization of somebody who obviously knew her far better than the rest of the world, and intimately so as her son. May Queen Elizabeth rest in eternal peace, and right back in a moment, with much more of her life and her lasting legacy, will be next. In the coming hours, King Charles will be formally proclaimed the new sovereign. And in an historic first, the right will actually be televised. Now, already, however, the king has fully taken on his mother's duties, dressing the nation at a time of grief and uncertainty, just as she had done over seven decades. So many are now wondering just what kind of king will King Charles III be? Got the perfect guests on tonight, royal biographer Sally Bedell-Smith, professor of British history and politics, Laura Beers, and the managing editor of of politics at Axios, Margaret Talib. Welcome to all of you. Apparently my diction is thrown off hearing all of their British accents this evening. So there you go. If the wrong syllable should appear, you have to excuse me. I'm going to begin with you here, Sally, on this notion, because many people, obviously, there's a constant of Queen Elizabeth. And We've really have known Prince Charles, but who might he be as king, knowing full well that he cannot be as vocal about his opinions any longer? He must be apolitical and very much behind the scenes. What do you think we can expect? Well, I think stability. Um, He has a prime minister who has been in office for two days, which is astonishing. And the queen, if nothing else, represented stability, tradition, continuity, And you can see those threads in his speech today. He mentioned tradition. And uh, and I think he has spent his entire career promoting. As he said, I'm going to put my causes and my charities aside, and there are other people who will be able to run them. And in fact, he has been doing that gradually for probably 10 years. He's been gradually sort of diminishing them, although he's still been... You know, he has still been speaking out on climate and on other issues that have been near and dear to his heart. But um, he, he knows now that as monarch, he must do what the government tells him to do. He cannot give a speech without the government approving it. Very different from the way he would operate as Prince of Wales. And yet there's like a real 
natural tension there because it's it's those things that have been his charitable causes that could actually endear him to a world, to these other 14 countries that are part of that Commonwealth realm where there are really a lot of movements against the monarchy, these talks about should we become a republic. When you're championing issues like uh, climate change or uh, some of the charitable work he's done for people in need, some of the words he used in his speech about respect was a word that stuck in my ear and loyalty, kind of flipping the script on the old colonial days. He recognizes that he is up against a huge wave of public sentiment, millions of people around the world who think about the legacy of oppression, of slavery, of imperialism. And he, to hold together to preserve some vestige of the monarchy, he has to reset that. He has to dial it back. We've heard he's talking about slimming it down. But he also has to change people's minds about what he represents. And it may be really hard for him to do that while he's walking that line with the prime minister. I mean, that sort of assumes he has power. He has sort of negative power. He had more power, really, as the Prince of Wales. And um, and he's a great believer in the Commonwealth, which is not really threatened. I think we're talking about that's 56 nations. And he has been a real advocate for the small nations, for good government, for reaching out to, you know, with his prince's trust. He's taken that all around the world in the Commonwealth. So he's not only been voicing things, he has actually been doing things. And yet, Sally, as you know, there are many nations, Laura, and of course, um, the sort of the realm and the empire was quite larger. Now you have many countries who are pulling back for the reasons you're talking about, seeking their independence, wanting to be a republic. Barbados most recently was one of those nations to say, okay, we've had enough of this sort of um, monarchy and what's going on. There has been this constant, though, um, but Margaret and Sally make this point, in order to keep their relevance and the support, they have to evolve and recognize what's being said. And in some ways, I mean, the comment that he can't really say anything or do anything without the the say-so of the government now underscores the extent to which he really is a figurehead, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's not going to be the case that in the United Kingdom anytime soon there's a discussion about doing away with the monarchy. But I think in Australia that discussion is already happening, right? In places like New Zealand it's already happening. We saw just recently Barbados became a republic. Jamaica is on that road um, by 2025. It's a bit up in the air. Recent opinion polling in Canada suggested a very slender majority would prefer to become a republic even before the Queen's passing. So I think, well, while his future as, as um, monarch is secure in Britain, it's less stable in the Commonwealth. And I, I well, totally it, agree with you. in the realms. It's the realms. 15, yeah, that was what I was going to say. 56. That I don't think the Commonwealth is going to sunder. No. Right? And not least everyone wants to still take part in the Commonwealth Games, you know, right? right. Um, right. But whether or not the, the monarchical realms... Some of them decide we just yeah. prefer to be a republic. And but he's, he's not truly, I mean, he's not, not you know, totally powerless. I, I understood there were these three, three rights that still exist. The right to advise, mm-hmm. to warn. To be consulted. To, to, to be consulted. consulted to, to encourage. Behind the scenes, he still well, has some power. Well, he has those powers, which are, you know, they're, they're almost passive powers. You know, he's not, he doesn't have the power to advise, to say you should do this or you should do that. And the queen you know, in her capacity of to, um, to be consulted, she would say, well, do you think that's wise? Or have you thought about another possibility? Not um, so productive as the idea of being able to say, here's what we're going to do in yeah, the power realm, yeah, right? No, you can't. I mean, the monarch can't do that. But yet, at the same time... But can be a sounding board. 
But at the same time, you know, each prime minister every week sits down with the monarch, kind of keeps um, her or now him abreast of what has happened in Parliament, what policies the government is putting forward. And that informal sounding board, I think, that takes place weekly, there's a lot of subtle power of influence that can be conferred in that space. Yeah. Well, now, Margaret, as you know, I mean, you've got somebody who is the is the constant, now formerly prince, about to be King Charles, and the brand new prime minister. I mean, one of them has some seniority. <laughs> <laughs> Two days. <laughs> Two days. Uh, I mean, look at what's going on in Britain right now. We've been talking about this for days now, even before the Queen's passing. But uh, the the implications of Brexit, the implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, these insane energy bills that make what Americans are dealing with look completely manageable. That is a hard way to come in as prime minister. And then uh, whatever the constancy of a monarch is worth is now off the table also. I think for now King Charles, it's also like a very unique opportunity to reset people's impressions of you. Um, He's always been sort of a very reluctant public figure. And either misunderstood or feels that he's misunderstood. Well, today someone kissed him on the cheek in the COVID era. I'm just saying. That happened today in the walkabout. And he loved it. And he didn't push back. Two people kissed him. One on the cheek, one on the hand. It's just just a time of huge change and uncertainty in the UK. And to have a new prime minister and the end, not just of um, a queen's reign, but that queen's reign. I mean, decades most people's lives. She was the one constant. And now she is not. She is. She really is Britain's identity. You know, prime ministers, 15 of them have come and gone and she remained and she knew everything. She'd been everywhere. She could, you know, she could tell prime ministers things that they'd never heard of before. I mean, it's it's exciting. We think about it in the prime ministers in the realm here in the States. I mean, ever since President Harry Truman, think of all that's changed here Mm in our country compared to what she's seen and what their, the ideas of it is. It's a fascinating time. And of course, Sa- Sally Fidel-Smith, Laura Beers, Margaret Tala, I wish we had more time with all of you and your insight. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, speaking of changing times, a special year at the U.S. Open is heading to the big finish this very weekend. But this year's action is also the start of something, an historic generational shift that's unfolding on the courts. And we're going to talk about that next. right now to the U.S. Open and the exciting close match going on right now as we speak between American Francis Tiafo and Spain's Carlos Alcaraz. Tiafo won a fourth set tiebreaker, now forcing a fifth set. Joining me now is Patricia Turner, excuse me, the director of the Arthur Ashe Legacy Project at UCLA. Now, Patricia, so nice to see you this evening. You were actually at the Opian early, Open earlier tonight. This is a real crowd favorite now. Francis Tiafo is getting people to talk about some really important um, athleticism. Tell me what you're seeing today. Well, what's really exciting for me as director of the Arthur Ashe Legacy Project is the manifestation of what Arthur Ashe would have loved, I think, to have seen. Um, it's been 54 years since he was the first African-American male to win. And I often tell my students he was the last African-American male. And there's so many similarities between him and Francis and their trajectory, what got them here. So it's a really exciting time 
for those of us really familiar with the story of Arthur Ashe. And we're learning more about the story of Tiafo. I mean, his background is, is so unbelievably compelling. Tell us a little about why it is there are those comparisons. Well, we'll start with um, the fact that Arthur Ashe was able to play tennis. He learned the game because his father was the groundskeeper for what was called the Negro Park in Richmond, the only place where um, he, as an African-American, could play tennis in the city. The tennis court was in his backyard. He had that proximity. It's the same story with Tiafo. His father is the grounds manager for the tennis courts. Um, they're integrated courts, of course, but he literally sleeps next to the courts. That's the exact same um, scenario as we had with Arthur Ashe. Uh, Arthur Ashe in 1969, he wanted, he wanted to expand the range of people who could play tennis stop it from being a country club sport. So he, with Sheridan Snyder and Charlie Passerell, founded the National Junior Tennis League. Tiafo came up through the National Junior Tennis League. So that's, you know, yet another comparison between the two of them. While you think about those manifestations, I mean, it really is unbelievable to think about. And of course, the statue still standing in Richmond, Virginia, of Arthur Ashe and the idea of Arthur Ashe Stadium, what's happening right now, there is a lot of excitement, regardless of whether he is successful and wins. I mean, he is successful in this process and he has become the fan favorite in so many respects because of his passion for this sport that's so transparently there. Absolutely. And he, like Ashe, talks and emphasizes that he wants to be a role model for the generation after this. He also wants to be, uh, you know, move his family. This, this isn't just about Tiafo as an athlete moving forward. It's about his family. It's about his community. It's about Americans because it's been so, so long since an American has even reached this stage. Such an important point and the idea of why people are, I mean, it's, it's always more than just about the game. It's about all the different things. And one of the few sports, as you know, where it's the magnifying glass is on the particular person to carry so much with him on his back. It's truly unbelievable. We're all watching with bated breath. Patricia Turner, thank you so much for your time. Nice speaking with you. Nice speaking with you, Laura. We're watching to see what happens. And thank everyone here for watching as well. CNN's coverage of the Royal Succession continues live from Buckingham Palace. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.